If you've got your Bibles with you, I'd like you to turn to Ephesians chapter 3. And really my, my aim for this sermon is that we're going to have a chance just to meditate upon and think upon the extent of God's love for us. And so it's very encouraging as a preacher when the worship kind of sets up all the balls for you just to hit. And so the number of times that the love of God was mentioned, his love for us, the number of lyrics that referred to his love, um, made me think that maybe I've been hearing God right uh, for what I want to share with you this afternoon. So I'm encouraged. So I hope you will be too. We're going to read um, a little section of this chapter 3 of Ephesians, uh, which is a letter written by Paul to the churches at Ephesus. And um, at this point in the letter, he prays for the Ephesian Christians. So I'm going to read from verse 14 to the end of chapter 3. For this reason, now the reason, um, sorry just to interject there, um, but the reason is, is all the way back in chapter 2. If you read through Ephesians, Paul gets very, very, very excited about a lot of good things um, in chapter 1 and chapter 2. He starts off chapter 3, gets slightly sidelined, getting excited about something else, and then in in verse 14, he comes back to the reason that he was talking about in chapter 2, which was the fact that the Jews and Gentiles are reconciled in Christ and are part of a new household, a new family. So, for this reason... I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length, and height, and depth of the love of Christ, and to know this love which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, and to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. There are about six years of sermons in those verses, um, so I'm going to restrict the focus, um, and I'm just going to focus on this love of Christ, which we read about in verses 18 and 19. Now, I love, actually, the NIV translation of this. I pray that you may have power to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. If we need power to grasp this love, I think we should pray for that power. So let's pray. Lord God, we love being in your presence. We love being together as family in your presence. And now as we come and sit before your word. We pray would you fill us with your spirit. Put your power 
in us by your spirit that we are able to grasp the extent, the magnificence, the wonder of this love which you have for us. I pray you would use my words. I pray you would open our hearts up to know more of you. And Lord, that we would go from here changed because you have encountered us in power this afternoon. Amen. I don't know how much you've thought about this passage before in the past. Um, it's, a, it's a fairly fairly famous passage, I think, and there's a lot of really good stuff in there, and it's kind of prayed out, you know, you will you do more abundantly more than we ask or imagine, that bit particularly maybe. But when it comes to talking about this love which Paul describes, he uses four dimensions, four measurements, which is kind of surprising on the surface of it, I think. Um, and, well, we've just moved house. When you move house, there's an awful lot of measuring to do. So I've had my tape measure out, and sometimes you just need one measurement, like a curtain rail. Just go, there we are, yeah, yeah, it's not going to fit. Oh, well, um, <laughs> back to B&Q. Um, but you just need, just need a length. Sometimes, so if and when you get the curtain rail up, you then might want to put curtains on it. And if you do, then you need two measurements. You need that width, and you also need the drop, or the depth um, of the curtains, so that they're not kind of halfway up the windows, or right down scraping the floor, or, or whatever. So you need two measurements for those sorts of things. Sometimes you need three measurements, like maybe you've got um, you know, a, a bookcase or something, and you, you have to work out whether it will fit in the room with the height, and whether it'll fit in that gap on the wall with the width, and maybe how far out from the wall it comes, the depth. So you need three measurements. But I've not yet, after a whole week of measuring things, um, I've not yet needed a fourth dimension. Um, and yet, when Paul describes this love of Christ, he uses four dimensions. He says length, and he says width, and he says depth, and he says height. So why is that? Is it just kind of hyperbole, just, you know, because he's very excited, and believe me, he is very excited. I would have loved to have been in that prison as he was dictating this, and the scribe just writing it down, because um, he was very excited. Is it just that, or is there actually something significant about the, these different aspects which he outlines to us? Well, I think, and you might have guessed, given that I'm preaching on it, that I think there is something significant about the fact that there are these four dimensions, so we're going to look at them in turn. So firstly, he says the width of this love. Well, width speaks to me about the scope of his love, the stretch of his love. The fact that his love is all-encompassing. In what is possibly the most famous verse in the Bible, John 3, 16, John writes, for God so loved the world. Not for God so loved this little group of people in the Middle East called the Israelites, or, you know, a slightly wider group of But no, God so loved the world. That is how far his love stretches. It encompasses the world. And if we read through the whole of our Bibles from cover to cover, which we're not going to do this afternoon, but we will see that part of God's plan right from the very beginning was that the whole world would need to know this love. So we are going to do a little bit of that. So if back in Genesis chapter 12, God speaks to a guy called Abram, who later became known as Abraham. And he said, 
in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 2. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you, this bit, all the families of the earth will be blessed. All the families of the earth will be blessed. That is the scope of this love of God, the width of it, the breadth of it. And as we read through the Old Testament, we see that he chooses this small nation of Israel in order to demonstrate his love to the whole world. And we see, as we read through, little splashes, little glimpses of this love that God pours out on Israel spilling over into surrounding nations. So we see a splash here of Rahab, the Canaanite, getting saved, incorporated into the people of Israel. We see Ruth from the people of Moab getting incorporated and blessed by God coming into the people of Israel. We see, in fact, whole nations blessed by God's choosing and using of this nation of Israel through the likes of Daniel, who was sent into exile and there blessed the nation into which he was exiled. Same with Esther, blessed the whole of that nation. Or stories like that of Joseph, who was sold into slavery into Egypt, rose to the rank of prime minister and blessed that nation as he prepared them for a famine which was to come. But not only Egypt, but the surrounding nations who all flocked to Egypt because they knew that grain was there. Same with Jonah, given a message, who for, not for God's chosen people, but for some city, Nineveh, who were godless, and yet they were blessed. Because God's love is wide. It has to incorporate the whole of the world. And as we then read through into the New Testament, we see that wonderful day of Pentecost, where 3,000 people are added, saved and added on one single day. And where were they from? All the known nations of the world who had gathered in Jerusalem for that Passover celebration. Sorry, it wasn't Passover, but they they were gathered there for the celebration. And ultimately, of course, we read in Revelation these words, in Revelation 7 and verses 9 and 10. After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could count from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes and palm branches were in their hands and they cry out with a loud voice saying, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Every tribe, every tongue, every nation in that multitude, that throng of people worshipping the Lamb that was slain. That is the breadth of his love. That is how wide it stretches. And so when we read how wide is the love of Christ, it speaks to me of that stretch, that embrace, where all will be recipients of it. And we sit here today because we are beneficiaries of that. It stretched far enough to embrace me, and it stretched far enough to embrace you, and that is good news.
And so I think that should then build faith in us. Because I wonder how many of us in this room are praying for people, maybe in our families, maybe work colleagues, maybe shift partners or neighbours or classmates who don't yet know the love of God. And this can build faith in us because we can read this and go, his love is so wide it can stretch even to them. And so we can pray with faith. Or how many of us have been watching the news in these last few weeks and seen the horrors going on in Gaza and the awful situation faced by the Yazidis in northern Iraq. And rather than holding our head in our hands and shouting, why, why, can't we call on God that his loving compassion would stretch even as far as those people? Why? Because his love is wide. So Paul prays that we will have power to grasp how wide is the love of God. But he also prays that we would know how long is the love of God. Well, length speaks to me of the history of his love. Length says to me that it goes a long, long way back and a long, long way forwards. It's unfailing in terms of time. And again, the Old Testament is is helpful as ever here. Um, That most popular of books, Lamentations, if you just um, flick through to it. But Lamentations chapter 3, verses 22 and 23. These are probably the only verses I've ever quoted from Lamentations, to be fair. Um, Maybe that's a challenge for the future. Um, But the Lord's loving kindness indeed never ceases. His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. That's the love of God. Morning after morning after morning, it is new toward us. Same prophet, Jeremiah chapter 31 and verse 3, he says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have drawn you with loving kindness. This is what our God is like. This is what his love is like. And a wonderful meditation on this is Psalm 136. There are 26 verses in this chapter and every single one of them has a second half which says his love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods. His love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords. His love endures forever. To him who alone does great wonders, his love endures forever. And I could go on for another 22 things, but his love endures forever. Length, the length of God's love, it endures forever. His love is so long that if you turn around and look into the past, you will see that even before the very beginnings of time, his love was there. And it runs in an unbroken, unfailing, unwavering chain through to the present day. And then if you swivel and look into the future, you will see that his love stretches 
beyond the furthest horizons into eternity future. Again, unbroken, unwavering. His love endures forever. Do you remember the Footprints in the Sand poem by Mary Stevenson? The author of the poem describes a dream that she has. And in the dream, she is walking on a beach with God. And as she walks along the beach, flashes, uh, scenes from her life flash into the sky. And she's able to kind of recount these various periods from her life. And she notices that in most of these scenes, there are two sets of footprints in the sand, hers and God's. But then she notices that at those most difficult or sorrowful or despairing times of her life, there's just one set of footprints in the sand. And she quizzes God and asks him about this and says, why, when I needed you most, have you not been there for me? And God's reply was, the times when you only see one set of footprints is when I carried you. His love endures forever. And whatever you feel or think when you look back over your life, and whatever you feel or think now in the present in terms of experiencing God's love for you, let me assure you of this. His love endures forever. And it is then that he carried you. And in fact, this ties into the whole of our identity, you see. Because Ephesians 1 verse 4 says that before the foundations of the earth, that's when he chose us. And so if he chose us way back then, and he is going to love us way into the future, then there's nothing that we can do to affect that. And so we're secure in who we are in him. Why? Because of him. And so I would encourage you to spend some time looking back and thinking about where can I trace that thread of God's love? How is it that he kind of pulled me through at those points? But his love endures forever. So Paul prays that we will know the length of his love, the history of his love towards us. The third dimension that he speaks of is height. Now height speaks to me of perfection. The perfection of his love. And I think we use this figure of speech quite a lot in our language. So where, where height signifies a sort of higher authority, if you like, or a sort of perfection or a, a bettering. So I've just used one there. That I'll refer that to a higher authority as if there's something up there that is more important than I. Or we put people on a pedestal. Or we take the moral high ground, somehow better. Or someone might be described as being at the peak of their powers or on top of their game. Or you might describe something as being the pinnacle of their achievements. There's something about height which uh, emphasizes 
perfection or something that is very, very good. And so when we think about the height of God's love, I think that causes us to focus on the fact that God is love. That's what John says. It's very simple, but it's what he says. And again, the Old Testament uh, would back that up for us. Um, So if Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 and 7, the Lord passed by in front of Moses and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression and sin. Right in the very heart of the character of God is the fact that he is love. And so to contemplate God himself is to consider the very highest expression of love that there is. Because he is love. It's in his very nature. And therefore it is perfect. Because God himself is perfect. And I would argue that everything that God does is in line with the fact that he is love. He has to be true to the whole of his being. So when we think about the creation of the universe... He did it in perfect love. When we think about the fact that he came to dwell amongst man in the form of Jesus, he did it in perfect love. When we think about the fact that he sacrificially sent Jesus to die on a cross, he did that in perfect love. When we consider his anger and his wrath towards sin, he does that in perfect love. When we think about the future restoration of all things, he does it in perfect love. He had to, because God is love. And so I think when we think about this dimension of his love, it should cause us to lift our gaze and consider him who is perfect, the very height of his love. And that should mean that we don't want to settle for what the world calls love, a shallow, fleeting thing that is very often self-centered. And instead it, it causes us to consider him and what he embodies in terms of love. And if it, uh, 1 Corinthians can help us here, so 1 Corinthians chapter 13, very famous passage about love. But it says this, love is patient, love is kind, It's not jealous, it doesn't brag and isn't arrogant. It doesn't act unbecomingly, nor does it seek its own. It's not provoked, doesn't take account of wrongs, doesn't rejoice in unrighteousness, rejoices with the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. And the urge there from Paul is that we reflect that type of love. That that type of love is seen in God. Because he is love and he is perfect. And so when Paul asks us to consider the height of love, I think he's talking about this high standard, this perfection, this beauty, this wonder, magnificent love which God has for us. And the fourth dimension then is the depth of his love. Well, depth speaks to me of cost. How deep the Father's love 
for us. How vast beyond all measure that he should give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. This dimension of all four for me personally blows my mind. The depth of his love. This is God's love on display to us. You see, the other aspects tell us something of the nature of his love. The fact that it is all-embracing. The fact that it's unfailing. The fact that it's perfect. Tells me what that love is like. This dimension tells me of what this love does. The depth of Christ's love points me towards the cross. That is God's love on display. And it's there that I I glimpse something of the costly nature of this love when I contemplate the cross. Romans 5, verses 6 to 8 say, For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for us. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. In John 15, 13, Jesus says, Greater love has no man than this, but one lay down his life for his friends. Again, back to that John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And later in Ephesians we read that husbands love your wives. Why? Just as Christ also loved the church and gave herself up for her. Gave himself up for her. The depth of his love speaks of the cost of that love. I mean, just think about what Jesus did. There he was in glory in heaven. And he descended from the very heights, emptied himself, humbled himself to become a man and live amongst us. That is the king of kings as a servant on earth. That's the depth of his love for us. Then as the most famous person in the whole of history, he lived in obscurity for over 90% of his earthly days. First as a refugee in a foreign country, and then in a small village in a Palestinian backwater. That's the depth of his love for us. The way he operated his public ministry meant that he who owns a cattle on a thousand hills had no place to lay his head. That's how much the depth of his love is for us. And then after the brief spell that he had in the public domain, during which he was hounded around the country by people trying to undermine his credibility and capture him and kill him, he willingly offered himself up to those who wanted to kill him. That's the depth of his love. And he then allowed himself to be beaten, to be spat upon, to be mocked, 
to be taunted, to be illegally tried, to be lied about during that trial, to be nailed to a cross and to be crucified. That is the depth of his love for us. And on that cross, he bled and he hurt and he ached and he thirsted and he hungered and he agonized and he suffered. That is the depth of his love towards us. He was misunderstood. He was humiliated. He was disregarded. He was cast out. He was abandoned. He was killed and he died. That is the depth of his love for you and for me. Carrie Job sings, What love is this that you gave your life for me and made a way that I could know you? What love is this that you gave your life for me and made a way for me to know you? You're all looking a little glum. So, hallelujah that he didn't stay dead. Okay. (laughs) Hallelujah that he didn't stay dead. No, he defeated death. He defeated sin. And he rose again, and now he sits in eternal glory, ascended at the right hand of the Father in unimaginable light and glory and wonder. Words fail me. That is the depth of his love for us. This is why Paul prays for power. Power to know this love. And this breadth and length and height and depth of the love of Christ, he then says this, and to know this love which surpasses knowledge. Hang on a minute. Know this love that surpasses knowledge. So, How can we know this? The title of my talk was Knowing the Immeasurable Love of God or Love of Christ. Hopefully I've outlined the immeasurableness of it, but how do we know it? Well, I think the clue here is Paul's prayer. He prays that we know something that is unknowable and therefore it's not up here. So sorry all you British folk out there who like to have everything up here. It's not an academic exercise. It's not an intellectual exercise. This is something that is unknowable. But we can still know it. We can still know it because we can experience it. We can know it in here, inside, in our hearts. We can know the love of God rather than just know the love of God or know about the love of God. And I feel that as a church, he's been speaking to us very clearly about the love of God over these last few months. So through the whole of June, we spent time looking at the Father heart of God. And then we had that wonderful sermon by Katya at the start of July, where she outlined the love of God in terms of the, the prodigal father, as she termed it, and, and the, the fact that we're adopted. It's really knowing the love of God. That's what he wants to put in us, knowing this love of Christ. 